The Rare Drug Development Symposium is an interactive global genes event produced in partnership with the Penn Medicine Orphan Disease Center that focuses on educating both beginners and advanced participants on the drug development process. Join us for this year's symposium, June 10th to 11th. An optional pre-conference workshop on June 9th will review the current landscape of rare drug development. This is an opportunity to interact with experts, patients, and advocates in the field and uncover your role in advancing drug therapies. To learn more or register, go to globalgenes.org forward slash RDDS. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. The translational challenges of moving an experimental therapy from the lab to the clinic can stall the development of life-saving therapies, but Passage Bio has provided a unique solution to that challenge. The company's strategic collaboration and licensing agreement with the University of Pennsylvania's Gene Therapy Program leaves the discovery and preclinical work in the hands of Penn researchers and provides it with enhanced access to a broad portfolio of gene therapy candidates, and future innovations. The company has built a pipeline of gene therapy candidates targeting central nervous system disorders. We spoke to Bruce Goldsmith, CEO of Passage Bio, about the company's relationship with Penn's gene therapy program, its focus on CNS conditions, and the company's lead program in the rare lysosomal storage disorder, GM1 gangliosidosis. Bruce, thanks for joining us. Well, Danny, thanks very much for the opportunity to speak with you today. We're going to talk about gene therapy, Passage Bio, and its focus on rare monogenic gene therapies for CNS disorders. Uh, A lot of the earliest gene therapies we've seen involve targeting parts of the body that are easier to deliver gene therapies to, such as the eye or the liver. You're focused on rare monogenic diseases of the brain and central nervous system. This is an area of great need, but perhaps you can begin with the thinking behind Passage Bio to focus on CNS disorders from a strategic business point of view. Absolutely. And you've started to allude to the reason for going after and trying to pursue treatments for CNS diseases in your introduction. So the way we think about this is that the CNS and the brain is a uh, compartment similar to the eye and the, and the, for the treatment of the retinal diseases. So what, but they, they do have some idiosyncratic um, problems to overcome in terms of addressing CNS diseases. So when we start to think about this, there is incredible high medical need for the patients that are suffering from CNS disorders and monogenic disorders are caused by a reduction or loss in a single gene product. And when we think about the entirety of rare diseases, there are approximately 7,000 rare diseases and about 70% of them, or almost 5,000, produce abnormalities within the central nervous system, which includes the brain and spinal cord, I should mention. 
And specifically in the CNS, there are 790 rare monogenic diseases, and all of these have very few treatment options. And the way we think about this is that uh, for these monogenic CNS disorders, targeted delivery of gene therapies into the brain, and there's multiple ways of doing this, but um, it's like the retina. So you're delivering the solution into the specific area that you're trying to address. And these gene therapies have the demonstrated potential of restoring stable and normal expression of functional genes that hopefully then restore the CNS function. And specifically, what we're using is AAVs to do as gene therapies. And these are the leading platforms of next generation of approaches. And they have particular utility in CNS disorders because they show promise in hard to treat organs like the brain. And we've shown in preclinical models that we can deliver these to the brain of, uh, of both of, of animals and show that it, within the brain, you can get expression of the target proteins that we're trying to, to replicate. In addition, AAVs have the ability to transduce non-dividing cells and the brain is full of non-dividing cells. And finally, this offers the potential for long-term disease treatment with a single administration. And overall, putting this complete uh, vision for Passage Bio into, into context, Passage Bio, as I'm sure we'll talk about, was founded by Jim Wilson at the University of Pennsylvania's Gene Therapy Program and it's the foundation that he laid about thinking about different compartments in the body and addressing these with gene therapy. Uh, it really drove the foundation and the growth for Passage Bio. One of the challenges with bringing innovative therapies from the lab to the marketplace is the translational science involved. We've seen a number of new business models emerge that seek to address this in different ways. I, I would include Passage Bio in this because of its relationship with the University of Pennsylvania Gene Therapy Program. For listeners not familiar with Passage Bio and its relationship with the GTP, can you sketch that out and the central role that relationship played in the vision of Passage Bio? Absolutely. And, and I, I, will thank, I, I will start by saying that the relationship is, is, uh, is very strong, not only with Jim Wilson, who I'll talk about in a second, but we get to uh, really tap into his group of experts across manufacturing, preclinical, even regulatory and clinical that we can use and, and collaborate with to build a stronger program. So that's one of the, the ancillary benefits uh, that has come with the foundation of Passage Bio, which was really driven by Jim. So, so Jim has built a truly amazing organization at GTP with the mission to develop and commercialize transformative, transformative genetic-based therapeutics. And the mission is driven by, of GTP is driven by the unmet medical need of patients uh, with these genetic diseases. And therefore the alignment between GTP and Passage Bio, not only at the foundation, but, but now is continues to be incredibly close. And, and our mission is to really to develop and commercialize those genetic medicines specifically in CNS diseases. So GTP is, has world-renowned scientists led, obviously led by Jim, and he has built an organization of, of uh, approximately 300 people across the various areas that I mentioned earlier. And through that, we have an option to license a total of 17 programs focused on monogenic disorders of the CNS. And this, uh, this collaboration will run at least in th into uh, 2025, so at least another four years. And this gives us 
one of the largest pipelines in the CNS gene therapy space. So the way this works through our strategic collaboration and licensing agreement is that in collaboration with us and thinking about which indications we want to go after, the gene therapy program conducts the discovery and IND enabling preclinical work. And that's very important because we get to, again, benefit from the experience of the scientists and the experts at Penn uh, that work cl closely and under the supervision of Jim to design all of these studies. And, and that provides our team with enhanced access to a broad portfolio of the gene therapy candidates. And then we pair that with our expertise in regulatory manufacturing and commercial to advance these. And the, and the great thing about this is that uh, our relationship is not static. So we, in fact, a year ago, we expanded our relationship in 2020 uh, to also collaborate on basic research uh, investments in new therapeutic technologies uh, in the gene therapy space, uh, as well as extending the relationship. We've certainly seen a lot of move within the pharmaceutical industry broadly to externalize uh, discovery and to forge these types of relationship with academic institutions, but how unique is the relationship that Passage has with the GTP at Penn? So I think the two words we often talk about are breadth and depth. So we do believe our relationship is, is well differentiated and we absolutely see other models where companies are partnered with academic institutions. It's usually um, across the university or in some circumstances, one, you know, across multiple universities where academic uh, groups can feed into pipelines. We think that this is a, we think these are, these are all great models and, and certainly academic partnerships are important. But I think that Jim has built at GTP a unique model. And he, because, of the, because of the breadth he's, he's built, uh, we get to capitalize on that. And as I said before, he has approximately 300 people. And, and one example of this is, um, is in manufacturing. So many, many groups uh, start to think about um, moving towards commercialization and manufacturing uh, with their academic partners. But Jim has a vector core headed by some absolutely outstanding folks that can uh, basically de-risk and optimize manufacturing. And, and that's a really critical component in the gene therapy space. And we partner very closely uh, with that group as they think about scaling up and then transitioning that technology into our dedicated suite uh, at, at a CDMO so that we can move towards clinical manufacturing. And that seamless interaction is, is I think, a differentiating point uh, as well. And we get to do that for the 17 options we have. And obviously, you know, Jim, in, in, as a pioneer in gene therapy, as a key advisor to us, he sits on, our, sits on and, and participates in our executive discussions when we think about strategy. He is a, a board advisor and he's our chief scientific advisor. So we have access to all of this cutting edge research and expertise uh, that is strategic, but also very, very operational. And as I said before, uh, we, ha we have an opportunity to continue to grow our relationship and build on the proven track record of, of Jim and his team who have, who have certainly brought forward many, many different uh, investigational new drugs into clinical development. I, I, I'm wondering if you can go a little deeper on that. How much integration is there in terms of the work and how much of an exchange of ideas and discussion exists between GTP and, and Passage? Or is there just a matter of, here's the data, 
and a decision is made and there's a clear handoff. It, it's uh, a very close collaboration. So we have ongoing uh, steering committees and research development committees, which are the formal uh, forums, if you will, for exchanges of ideas. And then we have a, a pretty constant exchange informally of the progress that's ongoing. Um, and again, manufacturing is one component of that, but I will say from the preclinical perspective, for example, as uh, data is, is being generated and, and studies are being designed, uh, we, we talk about what those are likely to be in the context of a clinical development strategy. Uh, and we include not only our folks, but also uh, Jim's group uh, from everywhere from manufacturing to you know, regulatory input to the preclinical because it has to be seamless. And one of the strategies in, in larger pharmaceutical companies, for example, is to make sure that there's constant dialogue between early research, translational research, which moves, and then IND enabling studies, and then into the clinic, because you have to know what you're doing, where you're going in order to know what you're doing at the beginning. So there's a constant dialogue that starts uh, often with me and Jim, but, but sometimes at the team level of thinking about how our, clinic, our intended clinical and commercial strategy is going to integrate with the uh, preclinical and early work. So it's an absolutely ongoing uh, dialogue. Uh, it, this, this becomes exceptionally close at the IND enabling stage and then carries through as we move forward to global filings because the global filings constantly need uh, support from not only our group, but also Jim's group. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that we continue to grow in Philadelphia. So it, we were obviously founded in Philadelphia because of that relationship. Um, after the IPO, there was certainly an opportunity uh, that we could have continued to grow outside of the, of, of the city, but we decided instead uh, to actually open us uh, another office that could accommodate the growth that we were experiencing simply be, to be proximal to, to where Jim and his team are. And you know, one of the things that we did before the pandemic was we would start to have meetings back and forth, uh, not only for that personal interaction, but also to share you know, obviously ideas, et cetera. And we, we do look forward to do, doing that again when, uh, when it's safe to do so. I should note, you also work with Penn's Orphan Disease Center. What's that relationship and, and how do you leverage its work? Yeah, it's a great question. It's another uh, another aspect of, of Jim's investment in in the uh, the rare disease space and his commitment to patients. And so, the Orphan Disease Center uh, has been a fantastic partner of ours uh, for for a number of reasons. One is to as, as we are bringing uh, people on board, as we've built our clinical group, for example, and other groups, uh, and and our patient uh, patient interaction group uh, that that works very closely with advocacy groups around the world. The Orphan Disease Center has these relationships embedded in their, in their strategy and their, their operations and, and their DNA, for lack of a better term. Um, and, and we work closely uh, and coordinate on, on those uh, approaches, especially as we're launching initiatives. Um, and, and we do have some, for example, on patient identification and genetic testing. And we, we've done that certainly uh, with, with thinking about the Orphan Disease Center's mission uh, in, in mind. There are also, you know, the other aspect in, in addition to kind of working with physicians and, and advocacy groups and identifying trial sites and, and areas like this, 
We also are running a natural history study that we're funding and the Orphan Disease Center is ex executing. And this is to help us better understand the genetic and environmental and other factors associated with our, our first in human study, which is the GM1 ganglocytosis indication, which occurs in, in very, very young patients. And so understanding the natural history of that disease is important for two reasons. One is scientifically and clinically, it's really important and there's, there's really a scarcity of data. And the second is that this could help us uh, as a comparator arm for potential regulatory interactions. So we consider the Orphan Disease Center an absolutely key partner in all of our endeavors. Well, let's talk about that program. What is GM1 gangliosidosis uh, beyond being a, a lysosomal storage disorder? How does it manifest itself and progress? Yes, uh, and, and this is an important thing that we always focus on, which is how do, how do we hope to change the outcomes uh, for these patients and these families that are so impacted by, by these really, really severe diseases? So one of the things I should mention is we, we talk to patients, sorry, not patients. In this case, we talk to parents of these patients um, because we want to understand what's, what's meaningful uh, for these parents uh, because these, these diseases are truly devastating. So you know, the actual uh, manifestation of these diseases is, is, a, is basically a rapid progression of neurologic decline. And what, and what that means is that there's a uh, progressive dysfunction in the central nervous system that shows itself by decreasing muscle tone, deafness, blindness, rigidity, uh, and, and, and other manifestations, GI problems uh, and breathing problems, et cetera, because essentially what's happening is that the accumulation of, uh, of, of essentially this, this error in a specific enzyme called beta-galactosidase causes uh, lysosomes to mis misfunction and not clear out cellular debris. And this results in death of neurons. So, so the neurons in the brain actually die and actually peripheral as well. So unfortunately, the, the patients that we're studying have symptom onset very early between six, uh, six months uh, or between six and 24 months, depending on the, on the patient. And survival might be as low as two years uh, or up to five to 10 years with all of these concomitant issues in developmental milestones. So it's a really, really tragic disease that we're trying to address. And it's a, it just manifests itself as essentially in very severe symptoms and then a very shortened survival. The earliest therapies for lysosomal storage disorders focused on enzyme replacement. Why is this not a very practical or desirable approach for conditions involving the brain? Yes, it's a, it's a great question. And I think there is absolutely a role for enzyme replacement in, in some diseases. You know, the, one of the issues uh, with the, uh, the treating the brain is that you have to uh, deliver specifically into the brain on a consistent basis. Uh, so the enzyme that we're trying to replace uh, may not uh, be stable for very long. And so it would, from an enzyme replacement approach, it would be, have to be a fairly constant delivery. And that would have to be directly into the site of the disease or the major manifestation area of the disease, which is the central nervous system or brain. And unfortunately, 
the enzymes that we're trying to replace don't sufficiently cross the blood-brain barrier. And so that, that means direct delivery into the brain. And so those two aspects, which is consistent therapeutic delivery and deliveries directly into the, the uh, CNS is not really practical uh, on an ongoing basis. And gene therapy, the hope is uh, that there, this offers benefit of one-time administration with both uh, the transduction of cells and, this, and then hopefully the stable uh, expression of those enzymes. And so that's why, while ERT is important, I think it's it's limited in some indications. Your GM1 program, like your other programs, uses uh, an AA vector. What makes this a desirable vector for CNS diseases? Sure. So one is that AAV has shown promise in, in uh, specifically transducing neurons and, and other cells. And what we've shown in, and, and others have shown, uh, depending on the subtype of the AAV, you can, you, can, you can basically get stable transduction and expression of the enzymes to a, to a high enough level where it, because of the delivery of the functional copy, that, that in animal models, you can correct the manifestations of the disease. That, you know, so AAV is, is kind of a proven platform to do that. Um, the other really important thing is that uh, we are not, we do not need to transduce every cell in the brain, and nor do we need to transduce necessarily specific cells because this particular enzyme uh, can can be taken up by neighboring cells. So if you put all of that package together, AAV uh, makes a very uh, compelling. There's a very compelling court, uh, case for utilizing AAV to deliver. Uh, this and the other programs uh, that we're trying to uh, advance, uh, at least for the first three. But you're absolutely right. There are other t- approaches that could be important, but AAV is kind of a proven uh, approach to transduce uh, into the CNS and deliver the gene of interest. And how is this particular therapy constructed and delivered? Sure. So uh, AAV uh, is is a virus, as as you probably know, it's non-replication competent. So once it's grown, uh, it can't continue to to reproduce. So it doesn't create any uh, infection. Uh, It basically uh, attaches to cells, delivers the gene of interest, and then uh, no longer transduces others. So this is using a mammalian cell, uh, which is a specific cell called HEC293 cells that are adherent to basically grow and replicate to produce the AAV. And it's using a technique called the triple DNA plasmid transient transfection in order to uh, transduce those cells that are grown up in in manufacturing. And then essentially those viruses are are harvested. And we've we've selected these AAV serotypes with high CNS tropism. And then we basically, you know, as we're developing this, and again, this is the this is the uh, great part of the collaboration with the University of Pennsylvania. All of this is optimized, not only the platform, the cells, uh, each, each gene that we're trying to deliver has to optimize the promoters and the codon and actually the, the whole regulatory elements and, and whole gene itself. That is all done to optimize, uh, to try a number of those and then to move it forward into the, uh, the full pr- uh, production that I just described. Passage Bio is actually one of three companies working to develop a gene therapy for GM1. This is 
in ultra rare condition, why are we seeing competing therapies emerge for this condition? And, and does that have consequences for how a program is prioritized, funded, or decisions are made about its viability as it moves through development? Yeah, certainly a, a, a great question. Uh, the, w- the way we start with thinking about diseases that we would like to address is, and, and, and in general, I think in, in pharma and biotech, is to think about how much we can impact in a differentiated way the outcomes of, of patients. So we certainly looked at uh, the, and, and University of Pennsylvania and, and, the, and the founders looked at the other approaches in, in GM1, and I would extend that to, to all of our therapeutic areas, to make a determination that we can and believe that we can create a differentiated approach. So we first look at uh, you know, how other groups are addressing other populations and say, okay, can we make, it, can we make an, a, a difference? And then can we prove or somehow uh, suggest that there's a pathway to show that that, that that differentiation could be manifested? And so in terms of GM1, and actually I will send that to Crab A disease and, and frontal temporal dementia with a, a granular mutation, the way we think about this is the genetic pathways are known, they're single monogenic diseases, and then animal models have demonstrated a strong response. And then we layer upon this, how can we show a differentiated response? So the two prongs are, are they amenable to therapy? Is this disease amenable to therapy? And can we differentiate? And so we, while we do see clusters of academia and companies pursuing certain disease areas, we also, like SMA and retinal diseases, et cetera, we think that there's an important differentiation uh, in GM1. I, I will mention that, you know, when we talk to uh, groups, advocacy groups, et cetera, they're incredibly excited about the multiple approaches that, that may be, you know, having data in the next, you know, six to, six to 24 months. And it's an exciting time. And having worked in, in rare diseases before, I think, it's, a, it's a really important to have the focus remain on the patients. We certainly think about the you know, potential commercial opportunity and comm- uh, potential portfolio decisions, but we also focus on, can we make a difference for these patients? And one of the things I'll say is having more groups in this field is really important for identifying patients. And that's an exciting concept and an exciting time to be, to be uh, leading this program. Uh, how does the approach Passage Bio is taking differ from what its competitors are doing. Sure, and, and that's, that's, that's a, that actually is a perfect fit with what I was talking about for differentiation. So most of the difference comes down in, in this field to a choice of administration and choice of, of vector. And can those lead to some, some point of differentiation? So in terms of one of the competitors, uh, they're using an approach which is IV administration or systemic administration, uh, delivering throughout the body and addressing certainly peripheral aspects of the, of the disease for GM1, but also then trying to see if there's enough of the vector that's being, or, or virus that's being delivered can cross the blood brain barrier and then correct the major manifestation of morbidity and mortality, which is, which is the CNS. There are other differences as well. There's, there's difference with, uh, with pre-existing antibodies. For example, if you're administering systemically, you have to watch out for patients who ha- might have 
an antibody to the specific AAV that you're administering. And there are differences in age groups that might be included and, and other aspects of, of outcome measures. But as I said, one of the major areas of difference there is the IV route. Now, another group is using a similar route of administration, which is called delivery into the intercisterna magna or ICM injection. And uh, this, company, this other company is using a different vector. And we believe that um, our, our dose is differentiated and our ability to potentially then uh, transduce uh, and deliver enough correction is, is likely or possibly differentiated as well. So again, and, and there are differences then again uh, of the number of patients and the type of patients that are being recruited. So it really comes down to AAV uh, vector dosing um, and as well as and, and dosing or route of administration, and then finally the patient populations that are being studied. But I'll go back to, you know, all of this effort is doing one important thing, which we might talk about later, which is essentially identifying patients that are available for for bringing into the clinical study and hopefully bringing cures forward. Well, what goes into the decision of how to best deliver a gene therapy for a CNS disorder, and are you taking different approaches within your program or are you taking the same approach from condition to condition? ICM or intercisterna magna administration is actually currently being used in all three of our lead programs. We certainly may adopt other approaches in the future as appropriate for the disease and also, you know, making sure that we're deliver we're optimizing delivery. Um, ICM, and just to talk about this for a second is is delivered under anesthesia and it's using modern neuroimaging and that helps to improve uh, the actual, ac the accuracy and delivery into the specific space we're trying to get to in the CSF. And obviously because it's under anesthesia, it's, uh, it's painless. So, you know, some people are worried about ICM being similar to a spinal tap. It might be painful. This is under anesthesia. And ICM is actually being currently used in several clinical studies in both pediatric and adult populations. And Jim and his group at Penn had shown that direct CNS delivery uh, had some very important differences. One is that it was a broad CNS distribution. There was lower overall dose delivered compared to IV systemic delivery. As I mentioned earlier, one company is moving forward with systemic delivery. There's a reduced impact of neutralizing antibodies, which I also mentioned. And there's obviously a single injection. Uh, and, and what we've seen is that uh, other companies and other uh, academic groups, at, even as recently as, as to the 2021 ASGCT meeting, there are more presentations on ICM showing these kind of benefits. So we think that, especially for CNS disease, it's very important to think about delivering by ICM uh, to improve the overall effectiveness of gene therapy. You alluded to two of your other lead programs, one in CRABA disease, the other in frontal temporal dementia. Are there different considerations in developing a gene therapy for an adult population rather than a pediatric population? There's, there certainly are. Um, as I mentioned, there are some similarities. So we're moving forward with ICM in, in both. We have very strong preclinical models in both, um, but there absolutely are some differences. So uh, one, aspect to consider is heterogeneity in the patient population. And as I mentioned, and just taking GM, GM1 or CRAB-A as examples, with patients with very early onset, 
there is a very severe outcome in terms of both survival as well as um, kind of the overall morbidity of the condition manifestations of the disease. And it's a fairly, um, unfortunately, uh, straight decline of these patients after the disease onset is detected. Um, so that, you know, from a regulatory and clinical and patient development and development perspective allows for a, a, a maybe not straightforward, but a very um, uh, a comparison that may be much more appropriate from a regulatory perspective, which is obviously very important. And regulatory approval is obviously critical uh, to make these drugs widely available. So in, in adult populations, uh, the, the timing of onset is typically more variable and the clinical endpoints are sometimes more variable as well. Now for frontal temporal dementia, what we've tried to do is identify a patient population that we believe is as homogeneous as possible with, a, uh, with some markers that suggest that the patient population may progress more rapidly. Now, this is not obviously you know, positive for the patients, but when we focus on clinical drug development, this is an important consideration about thinking, to, thinking about making the population, again, as homogeneous as possible, as possible. So it's all about clinical endpoints strictly from a regulatory perspective. Now, the second piece is that patient identification uh, for adult conditions uh, may be sometimes more difficult. Uh, this is not to diminish the difficulty in identification in children, but there are, for example, in CRAB-A, initiatives to increase a newborn screening, for example. And that, and, and you know, there's some initiatives to hopefully get other conditions on the, the newborn screening panels. And you know, for adult indications, diagnosis like FTD may be confused with other conditions such as Alzheimer's and, and other dementia forms. And so correct, correct diagnosis may happen late because there are not significant screens on the genetic basis for these conditions. So you know, those are some of the differences. Um, you know, there's one interesting misperception sometimes about the amount of drug delivery that's needed. Uh, adults do not have a, a significantly larger uh, brain uh, versus kind of body mass as you get to adults. So gene therapy uh, for the for CNS delivery is actually uh, fairly amenable to um, to adults versus children um, because adult you know brain mass uh, it just doesn't differ very much from say uh, a five to to ten year old. So that's that's similar. That's generally why we've uh, chosen the same route of administration for all of our lead programs. But as I said, we may change that in the future uh, based on on, on data driven needs. And it, in broad terms, is there something you can offer with regards to the clinical development timeline for these? Absolutely. So our lead program, uh, which is the in, in infantile GM1 gangliosidosis. We've actually dosed our first patient and that study is open and, and, and enrolling. Uh, we actually have uh, regulatory approvals for in four different countries and uh, we continue to open more sites. We expect to report the initial 30-day data, which is really the biomarker of the enzyme we're trying to replace and safety uh, in, the, in the fourth quarter of this year. So hopefully uh, uh, yeah, by the end of this year, in the next uh, seven months. 
for frontal temporal dementia, we do have regulatory approval in the US uh, as well as uh, um, outside of the United, or we're moving forward outside the United States and CRAB A disease were also approved in the US and outside of the United States. Those studies will open in the second and third quarter uh, of this year and the 30 day data should be in the first half of next year. So we are moving forward on the clinical stage and, uh, and, and we have a pipeline behind that of, of additional um, programs that are, that are moving forward as well. Passage Bio is well connected within the financial community. One of your founders is out of Orbanet, another out of Fraser Healthcare Partners, you're out of Deerfield. I, I suspect Passage could have raised substantial capital through private equity it decided to raise money through an initial public offering in 2020 as a preclinical stage company. Why is that? And what, what was the thinking? So we, we had an interesting uh, discussion um, at the, t- uh, just before I, w- I was, I joined, but I was certainly part of the initial stages of that about whether to go public or to raise additional money. Uh, gene therapy is an incredibly capital intensive uh, uh, endeavor. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's. I think all pharmaceutical and biotechnology companies are, are you know, have long timeframes and and, uh, and and do require a significant amount of investment. So when we thought about the time at the time, uh, we had, uh, as you said, very strong uh, backers, and uh, but we were also looking at the biotech market, which was uh, incredibly robust, and we saw uh, a number of companies that were no longer in the clinical stage going public. And those ranged from uh, platform technology companies uh, to strictly drug development companies that were preclinical. And we assessed the the openness of the market using kind of our our board and our our, uh, financial backers, as well as obviously our advisors from the the banking community. And we thought that this was an appropriate time uh, given how strong the biotech market was and the reception of gene therapy and preclinical uh, companies, especially I think because we had and continue to have obviously uh, the support and the uh, the recognition uh, from Jim Wilson's contributions to building the foundation of the company and driving the pipeline forward. So interestingly, we were one of the I think we were the last uh, company to go public in early 2020 uh, as the pandemic was hitting because our financials were were still uh, a- able to support going forward. Uh, so we were able to take advantage of this uh, of this just as the market was declining. I think we actually closed when the market was down five to 10%. Um, we targeted $125 million, but raised uh, a little over $240 million. And, uh, and obviously it was the right decision in retrospect because we were able to raise uh, such a robust amount. And uh, we've actually supplemented that with an additional financial raise uh, this year. And uh, you know, we're very happy with our cash position. We closed the first quarter with uh, about $430 million. And this has given uh, us enough uh, money to obviously move all these programs forward. And I'll, I'll note that you know, one of the things that we said at the IPO was that we were going to file and get approved for three different drugs to move into the clinic. And uh, we did that all in the beginning of this year. So we've really uh, delivered on the prom- on the initial promise of Passage Bio, and we have enough cash uh, for the operations uh, at least for the next 24 months. And we look forward to bringing not only GM1, FTD, and Crabbe forward, but additional programs as well. Bruce Goldsmith, CEO of Passage Bio. Bruce, thanks so much for your time today. Danny, thanks very much for the opportunity to speak with you. 
Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.